Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. So Cass, as you know, I'm quite fond of beginning the episodes with quotes these days. Love it. And I have, I have a really great one from more than 125 years ago from Vogue. And in the October 31st, and it has nothing to do with Halloween, 1895 issue, they published this. They said, quote, we ride, we wheel, we fish, we row, we sail our own yachts, we hunt and shoot and play tennis and golf, we climb mountains, we go in for elaborate gymnastics, fencing, racing, running, walking, et cetera, et cetera. The result of all of this activity being that we have become as proud of our muscles and our nerve as our dear mothers and grandmothers used to be of their delicate constitutions. And you will find those well-said words contributed by the Marquise de Sordi splashed across opening pages of the absolutely triumphant, the playful, and what promises to be the winningest Exhibition catalog of 2021, Sporting Fashion Outdoor Girls, 1800 to 1960. We are so excited about this exhibition. Yep. It has been 10 years in the making. It features 700 objects in the catalog. It is little wonder that the photography alone took five years based on that one fact. April and I were lucky enough to actually get a sneak preview of this project back in January of 2020 when we were in LA for the iHeart Radio Podcast Awards, which feels like quite a long time ago, April. Right. <laughs> a whole pandemic passed. Yes. Yes. Today's guest most graciously invited us to visit them at the FIDM Museum or FIDM Museum at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising in Los Angeles, where our first guest, Kevin Jones, serves as curator, and fellow guest, Christina Johnson, is the associate curator. And we had an absolute blast with them. And it goes without saying that we definitely wanted to cover their groundbreaking and at that time upcoming survey of the history of women's sportswear, which was originally slated to debut at FIDM or FIDM in the fall of 2020. But well, we all know how that goes. <laughs> we all know that narrative went. Yeah. So here we are, fast forward to 2021. And while the opening in LA was postponed, obviously, due to the pandemic, we are happy to relay to all our listeners that it might be coming soon to a museum venue near you. The tour was actually already set to tour several other venues across the United States. And just last week, it opened at the Frick Pittsburgh, where it will be on view until the end of September. So gear up, dress listeners, for part one of our two-part conversation with Christina and Kevin about what the exhibition and catalog have in store for you, because we promise this show is a game changer. Christina and Kevin, welcome to Team Dressed. Yes. And just fair warning, friends, there are a lot of thematic puns in these episodes. <laughs> 
Christina, Kevin, it is so hard to believe that it's been over a year and a half since we came to visit you at FITM, and you gave us such a great behind-the-scenes tour of your museum spaces and collection rooms. We even got to see some of the items we will discuss today up close and personal. Welcome to Dressed. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. We're avid listeners, so it's a real honor to be with you today. Yep. Yeah, well, we are super excited, as we have already told you multiple times before we started recording (laughs) about this episode, um, because this exhibition has really been this labor of love. You have been working on this and actively collecting for this concept for quite some time. And anybody who gets to see the show in person or gets their hands on the catalog, which we highly recommend, is going to realize this as soon as they they see what you have done. So I'm hoping that you can share with our listeners a little bit about how the show was first conceptualized and the process of realizing a show of this magnitude, because it is quite the undertaking. Well, I'll start. Yes, it's really unusual that a curator would have as long to work on a project. You know, I think long projects in museum are often what maybe three to five years at the most. However, this was something that we couldn't put an exact timeline on at the beginning, at least. And we had tons of other things that we have to do. I mean, we have our annual Hollywood costume exhibition. We were working on the fabulous exhibition, the Betsy Bloomingdale exhibition. We founded our fashion council. We did capital campaigns. So we had all sorts of other things going on in the, in the, in the background while we were also working on what turned out to be sporting fashion, which was originally titled Outdoor Girls because it does relate to the outdoor girl scarf that we found. And that was really kind of the genesis of the, of the whole show. You know, I'd been here as the curator and I was going through our collections. Christina was going through the collections. We realized that, okay, we have some sportswear along with ball gowns and other things like that. But what we had when I first started in the collection was really kind of awful. It was worn out bloomers, you know, like Contempo bike shorts that had been washed maybe 80 times. Why these were in the museum's collection, I'm not quite certain. So, you know, you know, with every healthy aspect of a museum, you have to deaccession some pieces and you, 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 you hone your, your mission statement, you try to acquire better pieces. So it just kind of became obvious that, you know, being Southern California, being, you know, sport related, the beach and all that, that, you know, we needed to collect some more sport pieces. So we started to do that informally until 2009, when I called Christina. That's right. He was at a vintage clothing show where was it in Santa Monica? At the Pickwick it in Burbank. It was at the Pickwick in Burbank. Mm-hmm. And he called me. I was at home on my couch because it was on the weekend, but you yeah. were working. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, Christina, I found this amazing scarf and it's red and it's bold and it depicts females doing all sorts of different sports. And it's written kind of in, it's printed in cursive, outdoor girl, outdoor girl. And it's wonderful. And I think that we should have this in a show about sportswear and fashion. Should I buy it? And I said, yes, of course you should buy it. Buy <laughs> right. it right now. She's like, buy it. And text me a photo of it. And it became this thesis piece. And when you look at the catalog, it, it is the end papers of the catalog. 
it's just a wonderful thesis piece with lots of energy. And that's the starting off point for I the know. show. It was really an, an informal collecting before that. And then it was the light bulb moment that, that happened. And then we started collecting specifically to do an exhibition. We didn't have a time frame or anything, but I thought, okay, this is an idea that we want to work on. And just, just so you know, you know, I was so hesitant about buying the scarf because it was a whopping $36. <laughs> and things just really started falling into place. You know, yeah. we are not outdoor people. We are sit not on the really. couch and, and read our books people you're not yeah. really an outdoor boy so it no. surprised me when you were so enthusiastic about this project but you know as Kevin mentioned we did an inventory of our collection we saw what we had we saw what we needed to acquire in yeah. order to paint a picture and we also immersed ourselves in publications that had already been produced about this topic so you know there have been numerous scholars who have published in dress and costume the journals of the Costume Society of America the Costume Society of Great Britain there were two wonderful exhibitions by Richard Martin and Harold Coda, um, All-American at FIT and American Ingenuity. And we wanted to fill the gaps. And what we noticed is that there really hadn't been a lot on early 19th century sportswear uh, from Europe, Western Europe and the United States. And we wanted to make a difference in that. Yeah, most every instance of either a book or an exhibition that had been done related to sportswear Really, you know, maybe they touched on, the curators touched on the 1890s as kind of a jumping off place. And then most of it is both men and women together, because, of course, it's easier to find objects when you're also including the guys. And then it was always brought up to the present because, of course, our entire world now is sportswear. I mean, we're all wearing sport dress right now. So we really wanted to kind of make it a challenge more than anything, to be able to find pieces that others had never been able to acquire or had shown or published, but also the idea of the head-to-toe look. Because, mm -hmm. you know, we've seen like a riding habit or obviously bathing suits that have been displayed, but so often when you look at them, at least in, in our eyes now, they, they're, they're not finished, they're not complete. These people are not at their environment doing whatever the activity was because they're not fully dressed because they don't have all those accessories that tie it all together so it was really a, a challenge that we want that we set ourselves to try to do this um, as a complete package that was the best 36 dollars you've ever spent oh. <laughs> i know i mean seriously and to be like the thesis piece for a a, a, a long-term project and something that has brought us so much joy i just didn't know why you were pausing fun. on buying it i will well, always remember that moment i, I said know. just buy it buy it and normally i don't pause <laughs> but i think it was just it wasn't just like oh my god this is great this is like we need to acquire this for the museum's collection as an object it was an object that went along with suddenly this idea of a project and that had never happened before. Well, I think you unconsciously recognize that if we bought this, we were doing it. We were doing yes. this project and we were going into it with full force. Yeah. And we are so incredibly glad you did. This leads me directly into my next question because I know April will join me when I say this, but our minds were blown reading the exhibition's extensive object list and realizing that not only is every single piece from the FITM collection, but that nearly every single object is authentic to the period 
This is just not something you see. And that includes the undergarments, most of the props that are used to accessorize the mannequins. And we are talking hundreds of objects here. And I'm pretty sure that all around the world, museum curators' brains are going to similarly explode when they see the level of care that went into amassing all of the period accessories. I mean, we're talking about skates, fans and rackets, goggles, riding crops. My personal favorite, you have a couple different Chatelaine bags. The list really goes on. It's truly incredible what you've done. And correct me if I'm wrong, I wager to guess that collecting sportswear is not something museums typically do because it's not necessarily designer. These aren't like you just mentioned. It's not something that's necessarily in your collection. But so how many objects are in the show and why was this level of authenticity important to you? There are more than 700 individual objects in the the, the entire project catalog. (laughs) There are 112 mannequins. And, you know, if you, I think we calculated it's about six objects on average per mannequin. There are 65 mannequins traveling. And I just asked our registrar through the American Federation of Arts, um, Ann Riley, who AFA is our partner with this project, and they are... Uh, likewise, a nonprofit foundation out of New York, and they have been around since 1909, traveling exhibitions and doing catalogs. Who knew that more than 100 years ago this was happening? And there are more than 500 objects, Christina, traveling with the show. And we are a design museum. And so, you know, our mission statement tells us that we have to to acquire, collect things that are very, very strong in the design world. And it doesn't matter if it's really fancy or very plain or if it's men's or women's or what time period it comes from. It's like, what was the standout aspect of design for any given era? So that's what, whenever we look to acquire something that's that's, that's our, our eyes, what our eyes are looking for. And, you know, as you mentioned that, right, not a lot of institutions necessarily collect sport dress because they're not related necessarily to art movements. Or if they're collecting sport dress, it's because of so-and-so who wore it at a given time on a court or whatever, and it becomes more of a historic object because we don't collect like that. So another aspect of the challenge for this, and we like challenges, is simply, can we treat a sportswear show like you would treat an haute couture exhibition in the sense of the design world and what we have to collect as the museum? And we wanted to argue that sportswear does have outstanding design merit and should be collected, and also because it can tell so many stories. We also wanted to be challenged by having, you know, head-to-toe authentic accessories because when you go to a museum exhibition and you see a mannequin maybe wearing circa 1900 suit and it has some neckwear on, if it's a prop piece, if it was made specifically for display as opposed to being a vintage piece, it doesn't have the same patina as the rest of the ensemble. It really sticks out when you start looking at these pieces. So we wanted our ensembles to be fully authentic and to have matching patina. Yeah. And also another thing that happens is the the ensembles took on, this is really weird. I never thought of this when we started. They took on their own color palettes Mm. according to whatever time period we were dealing with and the uh, objects we were collecting 
for some reason, putting them all together, they all matched each other. It, I mean, once we were finished, we do have instances where the ensembles were worn together. We know that these pieces were worn together in the 1890s or the 1950s. And at other times, we're collecting individual elements from the same time period, the 1850s, the 1910s, that could have been worn together for a sporting activity. But it was fascinating that when they were put together, it's as if they had always belonged together. And that, that was a really interesting aspect. Well, in styling these mannequins, we generally would start with one piece, one yeah. stellar piece, whether that was an accessory or a main body garment. And then uh, we would start adding. And it was important for the accessories to not only be of the era, generally within about a decade's worth of time, but also that they had visual uh, dynamic appeal and worked. And it took a lot of time. Yeah. Took a lot of time. Because we're a design museum. So the design aspect of whatever the object is had to take precedence for, for acquisition. And the other thing, uh, you mentioned like the, the props. I mean, we do have prop pieces in the project. Most of them are the gloves the mannequins are wearing because of course, you know, putting gloves on or taking gloves off a mannequin hand because our hands, you know, move around. Mannequin hands are solid and they can be damaged so easily. But we're, we're fortunate that we have a large prop glove collection. And for us, a prop is not necessarily a modern piece, like a, a modern pair of gloves we bought. We actually have period gloves that the person would have worn for the sport. But for us, they're props because they're simply not accessioned objects into the museum's permanent collection. Mm. So we treat those prop objects. If we put a pair of gloves on, they rip and they get damaged. Those can be discarded elements. So that's how we have treated the prop objects. It's not that we added anything new, but that there were certain types of pieces that we New could be damaged, so we got period pieces, but they're not accessioned into the collection. Right. And and I love the fact that in the exhibition catalog, through all the ensemble lists, if it is a prop, you guys actually note it in there. I was like, okay, this is some serious level of detail. Yeah. Well, we're the type of people who in exhibition catalogs, we go to the very back and look at those object lists and see who donated this, when did they get this, right. is this real or not? So that's what we did. You know, and other institutions have not listed those prop elements. And we feel that that's a disservice to students or even just the general public looking at these, you know, ensembles or, or objects, you know, are they from the period? Are they recreations? We feel it's really important to be very upfront about that. Yeah, yeah. And, and all of this in consideration across the 160 years of women's sportswear history that the show covers, I, I want to touch back a little bit into some of the earliest periods that you speak about, specifically in the exhibition catalog, because of course, women engaged in sport centuries and even millennia prior to when the exhibition begins. And we may not necessarily have extant garments from these periods, but there's plenty of documentation that exists in artwork sitting back to ancient antiquity, the Middle Ages, also the Renaissance. So what exactly were sporting women wearing during the pre-modern era and what types of sports were they engaging in? So, well, Christina, I'm going to take that question because I am very, very proud of the introductory essay to the catalog that does go back about 4,500 to about 4,500 BC. And it was a fun essay to work on because it was really outside of my normal comfort zone of research and writing. 
uh, Christina and I are absolutely 19th century, 20th century people. And, you know, I have not studied a lot uh, that predates the Renaissance. You know, medieval back is really kind of a very, very fuzzy for me. But again, it's another reason why it was really good that our institution gave us the time to work on this project. We had to get everything else, you know, all of our other responsibilities in place, but we could just continue on with this because I, uh, through all the, the years and years of research, we were just collecting any little tidbit that we came across that was pre-1800 that talked about sport women and what they were wearing and there is very little information especially the farther back you go you know and so it was it was fun putting that that essay together and and we broke it up into the the four main sections which is the like the ancient world the medieval world the renaissance world and then kind of the baroque enlightenment time period and also i wanted each of those sections to be evenly treated because yes, there is more information from the 18th century than there is from the 13th century about this. So like going back to the, the, the most ancient time periods, we have like the, the Herarian games and Hera is the, the goddess of fertility. And a lot of the sports, especially that were connected with women uh, in the ancient world were around marriage and childbearing and so forth. And so of course, Hera came into that and you had a, a kind of a parallel Olympics. You know, the Olympics we have today was ancient, really the, uh, in the, the eighth century, it got started BC and men were only into the Olympics. The women were not allowed because they weren't even allowed into the stadiums with men because the men were, were performing in the nude. But there was a parallel with the Herarian games that were also um, performed on Mount Olympus in the same stadium, but it was only just women. And it, it, it also paralleled the kind of every four years that they had these games. And it was really popular with sprinting, running. And when, while I was doing the research, I found the statue that is at the Vatican. Uh, and there is one other at the British Museum that shows these two women that are sprinters at the, the Herarian Games. And they are wearing a garment type that is apparently only associated with those sprinting events, women, and were in no other way worn because they were single-shouldered garments that had the right breast exposed. And it related to the kind of tunics that men wore, but also that nudity aspect. So I found that really fascinating. And the fact that we have these statues, one is marble, one is bronze, that show the women at the event running, wearing these outfits. And so, you know, there are none of these garments that have survived from antiquity. And that was a really wonderful aspect to be able to research and to bring out as in these, this early, early time period, because I'd actually never heard of it before. And I did not know that women did participate in these activities. And um, they were broken up into sections as well. It was like prepubescent girls running and competing with each other. Then it was teenagers, probably who had just started to be able to bear children. So they were then 
eligible for marriage. And then you had the older maidens who maybe had not yet been able to marry for whatever reason. And these games were kind of calling cards to advertise that these women were available for the next phase of their life, marriage, children, and so forth. Oh, that's really interesting. I had never heard of this either. Yeah, I absolutely love this section. It taught me so many things like that skiing is 4,500 years old. (laughs) But it was also this potent reminder that the relationship between women and sports is thousands of years old. We meet some incredible women in this section, women involved in chariot races, for instance, which I believe is in the Roman Empire. Then we met Elizabeth Stokes, who is the first female boxer in the 18th century, But you actually take the year 1800 as the starting point of the exhibition. I'd love if you can speak to why this proved itself a good jumping off point. And that is a pun. And I think there's a lot of puns coming (laughs) your way. This is an object-based project. And so we needed the stuff in order to do it. And generally, pieces dating before the early 19th century are really rare. You know, certainly there are some 18th century riding habits out there. Also medieval hawking gloves. A pair of Queen Elizabeth I's riding um, boots exist. And to be honest, we started this project with the intention of beginning it in the late 18th century. And we acquired this wonderful silk um, Casacan de Chasse, a French riding jacket. And then we started trying to put together the other elements, the skirt, the shoes, all of that. And we just couldn't find it. You Mm -hmm. know, prices for those types of pieces are quite high at auction. It's not like they're going to be donated out here in Southern California. So we decided to start in 1800 because that's really when we started beginning to find things that we could acquire. We realized, we recognized that fashion does not magically change overnight from December 31st of one year to January 1st of the next year, whether you're talking about a century, whether you're talking about a decade, but it was a great organizing principle. Uh, Those nice round numbers look good in a title also for branding purposes. (laughs) And we really thought that covering the entire 19th century and the first half of the 20th would be the way to go. Yeah. And and speaking of, um, you know, with with so many marvelous objects, which you did track down to work with, can you tell us a little bit about how you chose to organize the exhibition? Because this is a whole thing in and of itself. We started with the catalog first. We didn't start with the exhibition because that we knew that the catalog would probably be, could be broader than an exhibition. Because, you know, you have to kind of bring an exhibition down to whatever you can fit into your gallery space. And we started out actually with six chapters in the book. But as we were, you know, going along and research and, and trying to organize, we, we, we knew that we needed to expand it more. And it ended up coming up with the eight chapters. And we were also working with our, our uh co-curator, Kirsten Pertich, who was with the American Federation of Arts, the AFA, and throwing around every idea. There there were no limitations. And uh, so working with her and coming up with what the themes would be in the titles for each of the chapters, once that solidified, then everything kind of moved forward much more quickly and actually much more easily. Do you want to tell about how we kind of came up with the different ways of dividing up the garments? We started with a PowerPoint um, document 
and we would put images of pieces from our collection, like let's say all the ski, ski ensembles, or we had bathing suits, and each ensemble uh, had its own page. And as we acquired different accessories for the ensembles and we were thinking about it, those all got loaded onto that giant PowerPoint. And one night we decided it was time to take a look at all the ensembles that we had and that we were acquiring. Uh, we printed off that document, we took it down to our 8,000 square foot gallery. We put mm -hmm. all those pages on the ground. So we're really low tech here. Very <laughs> so we printed out the pages, each representing a sportswear ensemble, and we started moving them around and saying how many, you know, swimwear items we had, how many winter type sports we had, right. and really, you know, visualized it through that. And that's when the chapters really revealed themselves. And then it was just coming up with wonderful titles for them, right. you know, and, and AFA really did help us with that. And it also helped to show kind of just seeing it all out visually on the floor there, what we had, what we didn't have, you know, what, what was not represented that was going to be very important. Is this something that we could find? We need to start looking, we need to start, you know, seeking something out, or do we have too much of something? Like we had a lot of bathing suits. So we actually ended up cutting bathing suits out of the project, even though we love them, they're beautiful, they're fun, but we just had too many because another, you know, kind of like the, the introductory essay and wanting that to be a balanced aspect through all those millennia for the 160 years and all of the eight chapters, we didn't want one huge chapter and then one tiny little small chapter. We really were trying to have uh, everything as very balanced um, as we could. And so that, that helped us to visualize immediately right there on the floor, what we had too much of, what we didn't have, what we needed, what, uh, what we needed to expand. So diving right on into the exhibition. <laughs> Another pun. <laughs> Thanks, guys. We're going to start with the uh, first chapter in the exhibition catalog entitled Stepping Outdoors, which underscores the fact that, indeed, most sports are performed outdoors. But this section also emphasizes some activities that, while perhaps not considered sports to us today, such as walking or promenading, picnicking, gardening, these still very much encompass European and American women's relationships to the great outdoors prior to the 19th century. I would love if you can speak to the fashions featured in this section and their significance. And also, I just want to say, how many types of garments does one woman need in the 19th century? <laughs> sportswear starts out with fashion. It was fashion first. It was not sportswear first. And the Aspects that one we wanted to bring out also were a broader definition of what sportswear was, because I think everybody understands what sportswear is today. But, you know, 200 years ago, you didn't have the concept that we have now. And so we needed to broaden that because the whole point of, of the project, both the exhibition and the catalog, is to look at the development of sportswear and how things came about. Because, you know, we may know what to wear to go bowling today, but there was a time where you didn't know what to wear going bowling. So you were trying to figure it out and what was appropriate and, and so forth. So it starts out with fashion, fashionability. And if you were a woman at any given time period and you were stepping outdoors to do anything physical, even going on a walk, a promenade, what were you wearing that was specific to that outdoor world? Because, you know, 
early on and you look at the catalog, especially, you know, each of the chapters is in a chronological order. And, you know, you're wearing garments that none of us would look at as sportswear today. It's like, wow, that's a really pretty fancy dress. But she's putting on a pelisse, which is a type of overcoat. She's putting on a bonnet or a calash, which is a specific type of outdoor hat to protect a hairstyle. So anybody in a time period that was watching that woman getting dressed, they knew she was going outdoors to do something physical. And asking about how many types of garments does one woman need? Well, I think that really depends on their socioeconomic status, also their interests, how active did they want to be? And we learned, this was fascinating, that the concept of mix and match, is really an early 19th century concept. A woman could wear the same printed cotton dress with a raised hemline to go gardening, to go walking, taking a picnic and just add different accessories, a different apron, a different hat, and it would make it appropriate for those differing uh, outdoor activities. I I love that idea of of mix and match being something modern. It kind of leads me into some of my favorite objects in this section because to me, they look almost modern, but it's a pair of rain mantles, which actually date to 1860, and they are made of oil cotton, One is tan, the other one is dark brown. And in terms of their silhouette, they have these drawstring hoods. And again, they have this sort of pelerine cape that falls to the elbows. And then these giant bouffant sleeves all the way down to the wrist. And then they extend to cover the wearer's feet, right? These are raincoats. So they're they're completely enveloping the woman wearing them. And as this is the age of the cage crinoline, they also have these, you know, voluminous, you know, giant skirts. Um, beneath that need to be covered. But the first thing that I thought when I looked at them is that they almost look modern. They almost look like Bonnie Cashin, which is incredible. And I keep, every time I see that, I keep thinking Bonnie Cashin, Bonnie Cashin. So I'm sure that both of you have a few favorite ensembles from this section as well. Would one or both of you share with us? Yes, it is difficult to pick favorites, but um, Mm -hmm. personally, I love the 1840s in uh, American fashion. I think because I love historic photography, and this is really the first decade where you see people in detail photographed in their attire. So one of my favorite pieces is the 1840s picnicking ensemble, which started with a blue printed cotton dress. And I can tell you the story of how we acquired that. Kevin and I were at an antique show in Dallas, Texas, and we were speaking there. We had been invited to speak. And of course, we wanted to do a bit of shopping also. And we had separated. We were Mm -hmm. doing our own thing in different areas of the show. And I saw this dress. It was on a mannequin. And it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, my gosh, what is that? Right. So I went over and it just happened to be being sold by a wonderful uh, supporter and donor of the museum, Stephen Porterfield. And you'll recognize his name as you go through um, the book we have purchased and he has donated pieces to us. So I saw this dress. And one thing about the Fitta Museum is that we're a small team. And so the curatorial team has been charged with approving all acquisitions. We don't need to take potential acquisitions to another board. So it's really just us deciding what fits with our collecting mandate, what fits with our mission statement. And right then and there, I decided that fits with our mission statement. I want it. How much is it? He told me the price. And without Kevin's permission, I said, we'll take Uh, it. We'll take it. (laughs) Because usually we discuss things together. (laughs) Remember, I called about the scarf. Remember, he's my boss. $36 scarf. (laughs) So we bought it. I was so excited because I knew that we could transform that into a perfect rendition of a Courier and Ives print representing a picnic. 
And that became a jumping off point. We started acquiring pieces, the collar, the cuffs, the mitts, the hat. And one of my favorite pieces, so something else I love is um, American folk art, uh, early 19th century American folk art. And so we wanted to acquire a picnic basket for our picnicking lady. And Kevin found the perfect one. Uh, You'll see it, page 34 to 35 in the catalog. And it's a large basket with toll painting. So uh, a painting technique with lots of commas. And it depicts vibrant fruit on, on the top. And it's says along the the edge of the basket, at all feasts, if enough, I most heartily stuff. So it was perfect. It was perfect. It looks dynamic in a photograph. So and I couldn't believe I found that picnic yeah, basket. That Seriously, because I, I was looking and looking and looking just to find any basket, let alone one that was, you know, again, dynamic designed, had this beautiful image on the top of it that's been painted and then that charming text that just fits perfectly with you know the fact that it was a picnic basket and it it dates from about 1835 to 1845 so it was spot on with the time period that we needed for this this lady that we were going to represent such kismet (laughs) yes so for me first of all I want to say I'm so glad that you pointed out those rain mantles because I have never seen rain mantles like those before and I could not believe that we found two of them for one thing and it started out actually I'm just sitting on my couch we're working on this project and Christina and I both did this that we were just putting in words we're just doing word searches on the internet like rain mantle oiled cape or whatever you know this kind of just just to see what might be out there especially with the visual imagery fashion plates or like career and ive prints and so forth and a photo came up on pinterest and i normally don't like pinterest just because you never know where the images have come from they're so hard to track down well i was able to track down this image of it was in somebody's living room and it was the 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 chocolate brown mantle and I thought what is that and there was this whole discussion that was going on about it from about 12 13 years ago and I was able to track down the woman who was talking in the chat room it was her friend and then it was her friend's friend's mantle and I was able to track it down and then we ended up buying it from this private collector and then found the second one to, that we could then photograph them together. So it, that, was, that was really fun. I think for me though, one of my absolute favorites is something that we had in our collection here before I got here. And I'm in my 22nd year here with the museum. And it's uh, page 5253, if you have your catalog and you're following <laughs> along with us. <laughs> and it's the Adrian Patio Ensemble. Oh, yeah. um, I, I remember like the, my early, earliest days going through our collection and opening up the box and seeing this fabulous Adrian and thought, oh, I wish, I wish we could dress this, but we never had a reason to, to, to dress it until sporting fashion. And so it was perfect. And I, I just love it because again, it's that visual imagery that, that was used on it. And it's, it's kind of like a paper doll cutout kind of feel and the paper dolls expanded out. But doing research, it turns out that it was uh, designed by uh, Thomas Dorsey Jr., who is a Native American, and he took the influence from wampum belts, the imagery that you see on wampum belts. And I thought that is 
fascinating. And then we were able to find that it was commented a lot in newspapers all around the country. This group of fabrics that he created, he matched with a, a, a textile manufacturer. And then Adrian saw the textile and ended up using it to create this patio gown. The design that Adrian created was this off-the-shoulder, almost peasant blouse that harkens to the Mexican peasant blouses that are very popular here in Southern California. So the, it was all of these kind of world groups coming together in this one design by Adrian, who was so well-known around the world for, you know, first being a movie costume designer and then having his own fashion line that sold across the country. And I, I just thought it was fascinating um, and was so excited that we could include that in the project. And readily linked with specifically Southern California sportswear. Right, exactly. The pool, you know, our pool culture going back to the 1920s even, uh, and definitely the 30s, was very strong and still continues. You think of pool culture in Southern California, and it was um, kind of ideal. So it worked. Again, one of those kind of synchronicity things of all different elements of design, the time period that it comes from, the, the place, Southern California, that it comes from, the designer, but then the design elements, such as this beautiful patterning that all fit together um, so nicely that we could tell the story uh, in this one single garment. And, you know, our, our imagery for the catalog, uh, it was tricky because we needed to be able to tell a story completely head to toe in one single photo. There are very few instances in the, in the catalog where there's more than one photo of the ensembles because we just didn't have the room. We knew that this was gonna be a very large project. So um, we needed to be able to tell stories both visually and through our text very succinctly together. And I'm just going to go out there and say that it is very hard to pick a favorite. There are so many incredible ensembles featured throughout this entire book. Moving to the second chapter of the catalog, you cover ensembles intended for activities, as you say, further afield. So hunting, traveling, fishing, camping, and one of my personal favorites, mountaineering. Our regular listeners may recall a past episode, one of our very first, with Dr. Kate Strasden, and she speaks about how the images of female mountaineers climbing in skirts actually inspired her to study dress and fashion history. I mean, these are remarkable images. She also emphasizes that far from being restricted by the skirts and presumably the corsets that they wore, women were able to achieve these incredible feats in spite of them. And the mountaineering ensemble in the exhibition dates to the 1890s. I would love if you could describe it for us and a bit about how climbing dress was dictated by the presence or lack of presence of masculine company. Well, um, we love Kate as well. We've known her for a long time. And uh, of course, when we were gathering our research together, the articles that she had written on mountaineering were the, the foundation of our text for what we were doing. And also the visual imagery that she had pulled together uh, that we were looking at for our mountaineering ensemble. And um, I interviewed Kate as well uh, for our very first collection conversation, which was really fun. But what's neat about this outfit is, is that skirt because it helps a woman with choice. And that's what these women were doing. It's like, if you wanted to go mountaineering, you had to have a, the choice of what you were going to dress and it had to be appropriate. It had to be functional and for multiple reasons. And the skirts, you know, women, if they were mountaineering, if they were hiking, whatever with men, 
really in the ni- late 19th century, early 20th century, you you needed to wear a skirt. It was required. It would be very, very shocking for a woman to be around men in a bifurcated garment. And so the skirt, though, that we were able to use is, is a divided skirt. It is this massive skirt that, to me, I don't see how it's more functional because not only do you have the skirt aspect, but then you have more fabric going in between the legs. Um, so, yeah, it, there's even more textile. And it's a heavy-duty duck fabric. I mean, it's, it's substantial. So if you fell or whatever, it would help to buffer you from, you know, scraping up your, your legs really badly. But if, if she were with women... She could divide the skirt. She could unbutton one half of it, flip it over, button to the other side, and it suddenly becomes a divided skirt. And later, especially in the the early part of the 20th century, there were uh, all women mountaineering groups that developed. And because no men were present, you you could shed the skirt and start wearing knickers or pantaloons of some sort um, that would have made, I would think, climbing easier. However, the photo that we have put, the double spread photo with our mountaineering outfit, shows two women in 1908 scaling a cliff, literally a cliff, in Scotland, and they are both in skirts and seemingly having the best time. The thing for me is that they're, they're, they're tied at the waist with a, with a rope, but the rope doesn't go up to the top out of the frame of the photo like if they fell, it would hold one the woman from falling to her death they're tied to each other so if one of them falls they're taking the other one with them (laughs) and this particular skirt that kevin is mentioning on the mannequin it's khaki colored with buttons going down vertically and it looks like a fashionable full skirt unless you fold over the front flap and then it becomes these large culottes and we had spoke we spoke briefly about how you know we don't think that museums have valued these sportswear pieces worn by women um, over the years but when you look at the auction market now some of these pieces are realizing high prices for example this uh, a similar model of this skirt khaki with the the buttoning flap a few years ago actually reached 14 thousand dollars and honestly we think that some of the work that we are doing and other scholars in the field are doing are helping people recognize the value of these pieces yeah it's amazing it seems like women were coming up always through throughout history with very inventive solutions to their sartorial problems (laughs) Um, and, you know, taking charge and, and of what they were wearing. So it's rather appropriate that the next section that I want to talk to you all about is called Taking the Reins because it covers the wardrobe of female equestrians throughout history. And this topic, what women were wearing to ride, really could be an entire podcast episode in and of itself. We've, t- we've touched about on the riding habit here and there in the past on Dressed. But I want to talk about what was worn beneath the riding habit. And Kevin, you said that for the most part, most of the ensembles photographed in the book, there's just one photograph of them. But every once in a while in the catalog, you do this other thing where you might, in the process of dressing the mannequin, photograph it with the undergarments that were worn at the time. And and I just want to point out that these are almost always authentic to the period. These are not 
replicas. These are not new construction to create the silhouette, as we see so often museum exhibitions. But because of that, because these were period, you have photographed the undergarments before the rest of the ensemble was added. And then we get to see the two images next to each other. And and this is just such a great way of illustrating not only exactly what women were wearing at the time, but also how they were, again, were coming up with these ingenious undergarment solutions to accommodate for the range of movement that they needed when it came to dressing for sport. So do either of you have a favorite example of these kind of look beneath pairings? Because it's not, it's not singular to this particular chapter. It, it occurs throughout the catalog. That was another aspect of the challenge. You know, it's like, okay, we have never seen this in an exhibition about sports dress, i.e. the undergarments. And so, okay, can we pull together some of these ensembles, but also show what was going on underneath? Because, you know, the whole aspect of sport, whether it's very passive, you're just going out for a walk or it becomes much more involved like a cricketing match or something. It's the movement. It's all about movement. And, you know, women in the 19th century in the early part of the 20th century, they were wearing a lot more undergarments than women do today at times and, and more restrictive garments and more layered undergarments. And so one of my absolute favorites is the 1890s uh, ensemble, which is on pages 120, 121. <laughs> and it's the, uh, actually, it was from our first photo shoot, no kidding. And the undergarments that we were able to put together, the pantaloons are, were all in our collection already. And they are actually labeled that they're, they're riding pantaloons. And they're made of a very beautiful, fine wool jersey. I mean, they would very, be very comfortable to wear today. I'm sure many people were wearing exactly the same thing over the last year with COVID. <laughs> but the thing that is really unusual is when we found the red wool knit corset. And I can tell you it was $13. <laughs> it was the, the dealer did not know what it was. And I about fell apart and screaming, almost screamed my head off when I, when I found it, but I, I controlled myself. And it's just so crazy as we were going along on this project. And I think it was being because we were so hyper-focused uh, that we were able to find uh, these ensembles that were an elements that are just really, really rare and people hadn't seen before. So again, it was that challenge. Now you, you think of these corsets though, and the movement, and you know, it's going to be easier to ride on a horse, to do the kind of motion that a woman is required in a garment that is going to move with you. And that's why like this red corset, now not all women were wearing red corset or knit corsets necessarily. I have found only two in my entire career. They're, they're, they're so rare, they just haven't survived. Um, but also how many were really created? That's another aspect of this project that was the challenge because there are lots of ball gowns that have survived because they were fancy, they were expensive, they were thought of it to be saved, but who would have thought to save black wool jersey riding pantaloons, you know, especially once those weren't worn anymore. And also they, they were made of a type of material that the moths just love to chomp on, you know. So again, it's that aspect of, of, of a challenge to be able to find these things and just to keep at it, to really just know that we've got to 
represent. And it's not like going to Target and, and having our shopping list and saying we need this, this, and this, and this. It was really putting in the dedicated work about 24 hours a day. Yeah. Perseverance. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to say, speaking of rare items, and maybe this is more common than I realize, but I have certainly never seen it. You feature a tailor's horse in this section, which I find incredibly fascinating, but also incredibly practical. It makes perfect sense. It's basically a way for clients to try on their dress as they would on a saddle, I guess. Yeah. And to be fitted. Perfect. Oh, so thank you again, Stephen Porterfield. I tell you, he's amazing. Um, (laughs) He found this in a private collection in Texas, and it is the only tailor's horse that we have ever seen as well. Uh, It is British. However, what's fascinating about it is that it is made from Southern pine, American Southern pine that had been the mast of a ship. So it's, again, this aspect of folk art. It's really kind of put together in kind of a naive way, but then it's been carved beautifully. And we have seen period sources, illustrations of these horses, like the uh, British firm Redfern that became very well known for their riding habits. There's an illustration that shows their tailoring shop with a horse in the back that a man or a woman could sit on. Uh, You would have an astride saddle if you were a man to be fitted. You would have a side saddle if you were a woman to be fitted. And there were actually even mannequins, jointed mannequins that could be fitted on these tailor's horse if you were a client that couldn't be there physically to have your riding habit perfect. Because in the habit, in, you know, literally, literally in the saddle, it's not like standing up. Um, so it, it had to fit in a very different way as the body was shaped on the horse. And again, it's this level of detail throughout that just makes this exhibition so incredibly extraordinary. Another section of the exhibit covers all things aquatic, as you mentioned earlier. You open the Making Waves portion of the exhibition with the following quote, There are fashions for the seaside in just the same way as there are fashions for the opera, or for a wedding, or for a morning concert, or for an evening party. These fashions are so broadly marked that they would produce the greatest consternation if worn anywhere else but at the seaside, end quote. And that quote is from Punch Magazine from the summer of 1850. So it goes without saying that we see plenty of swimwear in this section from the simple linen shift worn for bathing in the 1800s to a gorgeous rhinestone studded sapphire blue velvet halter swimsuit. <laughs> it's, I'm like, I just want to wear that around my house. Yeah. <laughs> and you do note that it's it's more suited for lounging by the pool in Hollywood waiting to be discovered than it was actually suited for the water. But it wasn't the swimwear garment per se that really captivated April and I in this section, although it certainly does. Don't get me wrong. Rather, it was some of the ephemera and accoutrements of bathing culture that were super interesting to us because many of them we'd never seen before. I'd love if you can tell our listeners about the print you included in the book from 1807 and also that incredible personal changing tint from circa 1900, because I think both of these really illustrate broader social mores of the era. One of the images, the illustrations we included in the project is a hand-colored fashion plate depicting bathers in a floating bathhouse on the Seine in Paris, and it dates to 1807. And what you see is the interior of a canvas structure, and 
ladies in um, loose chemises that are taking a dip in this wooden structure that allows the Seine water to come in. And another fashionable lady has come into the structure. She's wearing her police. She has her shawl. She has uh, a parasol. And she's helping to be undressed by the towel woman who would... Um, facilitate getting into these rented shifts, give them a rented towel. And it's a group gathering. This was about community as much as it was about fun. And in this particular print, the, a gentleman has um, created a hole in the top of the canvas tent and he's reaching down to pinch one of the bathers. So generally this was segregated by sex, but here we, we have a visitor. And what's interesting about this particular- <laughs> this, is, this is Paris, by the way. This is Paris, so I guess <laughs> anything goes, right? And what's interesting about this series of prints is that the one we have included is the G-rated version, but in the, the X-rated version, some of the ladies, their tops have come down, you see, um, rounded bottoms, lots of rounded uh, elements. And um, so, yeah, there was a lot of uh, sexual excitement at times with sporting fashion as well. And I just love, I had never, I had no idea that these sort of floating bathing platform tent things were even a thing. Of course, we've talked about bathing machines on the podcast before that were kind of like rolled down to the water's edge so that women could enter the water and exit the water modestly. But this is something that's on this whole other scale. It's almost like this ginormous like canvas arc where the water is flowing through it and then women can go and and get into the water privately in groups without anyone seeing. Or a peeping Tom. Uh, or a peeping, yeah, we've got one here. <laughs> and that leads us to, if you did not have one of these giant floating structures, you might have this personal changing tent, which I'm also going to put a challenge out to any of our listeners who are historical costumers and want to recreate this and try to change in it. Because what Kevin is about to speak to might just be a little mind-blowing. <laughs> you know, it, again, it was mind-blowing because we had never seen one of these before. We had vaguely heard about I don't know, some changing tents or something like that. And yes, as you know, as April mentioned, there were their bathing machines, where there was these big wood huts on wheels and they were pulled down to the water. And, and you know, when you were being pulled down to the water, you went inside changing out of your fashionable clothing into a bathing attire. And then you could walk down little steps into the water. Sometimes there was a little kind of a canvas hood over the steps, even for more shelter. You know, when you would bob around and then you'd go back up and you'd be changing while that machine was pulled back up to the beach. It seems incredibly cumbersome and these poor horses, you know, pulling these things back and forth all the time. But they were all over the United States, especially the eastern seaboard, all, in, all throughout Europe in, in the waterways, not just at the ocean. And they were popular since at least the 18th century. Now, you fast forward, though, to right around 1900, and those bathing machines are starting to give way to more like the cabins up at the beach end where the boardwalks are. And you could, or you could rent one of those cabins and store your stuff in it. You would go up there and change or whatever, and then, you know, be down, on, down at the lower part of the beach where the water is. And also, there were big umbrellas that like beach umbrellas that were developed. And some of them had little connecting kind of canvas curtains around the, the parameters. So you could create like a little hut. But all of that was very stationary. It was like you had to be encamped somewhere on the beach. But instead, this the, the thing that we found, a dealer contacted me and said, hey, you need to look at this auction in 
France because this weird thing is coming up for sale that you might be interested in. And when I saw it again, I fell out of my chair. I'm like, okay, we have to acquire this. And literally, you know, because of the time difference, I'm up at three o'clock in the morning bidding live for this auction. And I told the person on the phone, just keep bidding. Keep bidding because we are acquiring this. I don't care what it goes for. We'll find the money later. And we actually spent a lot of money on it. But I was really nervous that because I had not ever seen it before, I figured probably other curators had never either. And since this is France, and as you know, with the auctions, the instant that the hammer comes down, you don't necessarily win whatever it is the object is because you have to wait for the government to possibly preempt the object and that means the government can then buy it for whatever that hammer price was and you lose out getting it well i literally held my breath for the five seconds or whatever afterward it was not preempted we got it and what it is it's a, a cabine de deshabillage it is a personal changing tent that you you wear it's made of a flannel fabric and it has this great big huge steel hoop that goes all the way around you and it hooks on at the collar and it's trimmed really pretty. Remember, we're all about aesthetics here in design <laughs> with blue and white terry cloth edging. I mean, it's so charming. And you would put this thing on wherever you were on the beach. You didn't have to just be in one special place. You could shimmy out of whatever you were wearing underneath and put on your little bathing outfit and then undo that hook at the, at the neck. And it literally just falls away. And you are there, poof, ready to run out to the beach down to the water and then you could gather up your hoop and put it back on and put on your day clothes and then take it with you and wherever you wanted to go and it is the only one that we have ever seen that has survived and it was actually the last outfit that we acquired and we because I, I i said to christina and the afa if we get this which we were going to um that we had to have an emergency photo shoot <laughs> in order to get it into the the catalog and it literally we got it in just at the last minute yeah, I think I gasped when I turned that page. Exactly. <laughs> so many pieces in this catalog, you're like the next page and you're like just stopped in your tracks by these pieces you've n I've never seen before. And speaking of stopping in your tracks, I have to fashion history nerd out on you both very briefly because um, please do not think that the fact that you styled and positioned the mannequin in the 1810 ice skating ensemble... <laughs> Oh, I, I see what you did there. Um, I know you would get it. <laughs> <laughs> it is, in fact, replicating the scene that we see in a fashion plate from Journal de Dama de Mode. And this woman in the plate has fallen while she was skating. And she's seated on the ice, kind of like trying, attempting to get back up. And you actually positioned the mannequin in that exact same position and kind of styled her in, in a similar way. And that plate is actually in my fashion plates book. So that's why I got it immediately. That's where we saw it. That's <laughs> where we saw it. And, you know, thank you for bringing that up, especially with the Kyoto mannequins, which are the 18th, 19th, and early 20th century mannequins that many museums, including us, use. You know, I think we're used to seeing them just straight up and down, standing, maybe sitting if you get lucky. But at the beginning of this project, we wanted to make sure to enliven these mannequins because, look, this is all about active movement. How could we get that across? And so in a photo. Yeah. So we just started playing with them and we learned that, yeah, with some adjustments, you could make them slip on the ice. You could make them kick a ball or jump. 
Uh, and it was a lot of fun. We did make some adjustments to the actual mannequins, thanks mm -hmm. in part to our collections manager, mount maker, Carolyn Jamerson. We did construct a, a special bottom for that mannequin, uh, uh, the ice skater mannequin that slipped so that she was stable. Uh, but it was a lot of fun yeah. to see these these Kyoto mannequins in a whole new way. Yeah. And, and, and you know, her skates that she's wearing are of the era. And, and they're a little bit more than these metal blades have straps that go across and then they were supposed to slip over your own shoes or your boots. Um, do you have any more incredible stories? You've already told us a couple about like sleuthing out objects that you acquired. I'm, I'm sure that so many of them just have these incredible backstories. Well, first, wait, wait. First, <laughs> we had a list. We were keeping a list of the objects that we needed. And it was this page after page list. A wish list. A wish list, a right? A Christmas list. Yeah. <laughs> and I would give out this list to every single dealer I knew. I would mail them to people. We would go to the shows across the country. And everybody was like, yeah, yeah, no, I've got your list. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is the updated list. You, you, and, and read the list. Don't just like, oh, yeah. You know, but dealer after dealer, you know, they're looking at these lists of things that we need to find. They're like, you're never going to find this. We've never seen this. And we've been a dealer for 40 years, kind of, you know, I heard this over and over and over. But slowly but surely, the list got smaller and smaller and smaller as the years were going by. And I have to say, I'm extremely proud. We found every single thing on the list that we needed for the project. You know, I thought, okay, we're going to get to the last five objects and then just have to like, declare defeat, but we literally found every single object that we needed. Well, Kevin, you found just about every single object, but the story I'm going to tell is something I found that I'm really proud of. It was important for us in this project to include spectator sport because many of the arenas where you see active women were also these stages for the latest fashions. And you really see that uh, at horse races, especially at Royal Ascot. So over the summer, uh, designers would show mannequins, you know, they would be walking around as the horses were racing. And we wanted to represent this facet of fashion through a red fern suit, circa 1900, mm -hmm. uh, topped with a Caroline Rabu hat. So just the ultimate in fashionability at that time. But we wanted to write about the royal enclosure and you needed a special button, a badge in order to access that to show that you could enter the special area. So that was on the the Christmas list, the right. wish list. And I started looking, I was looking everywhere. Uh, I looked on eBay and I actually really lucked out after many, many hours, many days, you know, because you enter the same search terms in every day for weeks or months at a time. And all of a sudden this badge popped up and it, it was a Royal Ascot badge with the, the person's number on it. It was large and it was this beautiful glass enamel work. And I remember sending it to you and saying, oh, hey, is, is this possibly good enough? Like, this is it, that's it. <laughs> this is it. So finally I found something that I think outdid even some of your finds. So. <laughs> so, so I have to say, I bought it in honor of Christina. Aww. That was very sweet. Yeah, and donated sweet. it. So that, it made the outfit. One of the few things that I actually found for this project. Well, and then I found something for you, actually. And that is the 1930s. Uh, well, it's also kind of one of these promenades. 
Um, but instead of it being the race courses, as it was really popular at the turn of the 20th century, in the, the, the post-World War I, 20s and 30s, it was the car shows. Those, you know, you would promenade at the car shows. And these were international events held, you know, all over the place. And the outfit we have is this fabulous printed chiffon Chanel with an extremely rare early Balenciaga hat. In fact, it is so early that it predates his going to Paris. So it's when he was still in San Sebastian. But the piece that I was so excited about, and Christina and I, we had talked, we talked about lots of things early on that, oh, how fun it would be to find this, but we've never seen it before or something like that, was, is the dog coat. Because of course, your, your canine became the most fashionable accessory that you could take to any one of these car shows. And the only one that we had ever seen uh, is the one at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Costume Institute. And it's so charming. And I was tooling around again, just nonstop putting in these search terms that we came up with just to see what might pop up over time. And we did that, of course, for research, for visual imagery, but also for objects all the time. And this car coat, this little dog's car coat came up. And I couldn't even believe it. And it is made of the finest cashmere you can imagine. It's completely hand-sewn. It's lined in cream silk satin. And then it's embroidered all on the outside with leather daisies, um, all done in silk work. I mean, it's fabulous. And there's even a little pocket with a little sniffly handkerchief for the dog. If your dog... <laughs> Your dog's little cold nose starts to run. I'm serious. And the thing is, what's great is it's labeled from Paris on the Champs-Elysees, but the name of the company is Aux Etats-Unis, the United States. Oh, wow. So you can tell their, their target audience, right? And it wasn't a fashion firm. It was actually a luxury custom luggage firm. And so if you were traveling with your dog, of course, you could have a custom-made travel case for your dog, but also your dog would need a traveling coat. So it was just, I couldn't even believe it. And, and so I, it was so exciting when that arrived. Did I tell you that I got no, it? No, I think you just put it on my desk because what you need to know is that I love my two little dogs so much. And so he <laughs> wanted, I guess he wanted to make me jealous because I wouldn't be able to put this on my, my little pups, although it's the right size. So I walked into my office and it was just laid on the table, you know, <laughs> I think I probably screamed. <laughs> yeah. So that's actually one of my all-time favorite acquisitions. That's so cool. Clementine needs one. That's right. Yes, yes. exactly. Yes. <laughs> and as if adorable car coats for our canine friends weren't enough dress listeners, we have oh so much in store for you in the continuation of our conversation with Kevin and Christina on Thursday. And again, an immense thank you to them both. There is so much more to come. Yes. And while I mentioned that the exhibition is now open through September 26, 2021 at the Frick Pittsburgh, I bet some of our listeners are wondering about the other venues where it might be seen in coming months. It will travel to the Dixon Gallery and Gardens in Memphis, followed by the Fig Art Museum in Davenport, Iowa, and the Munson-Williams-Proctor Institute in Utica in 2023. In 2024, we will see the show installed at the Taft Museum of Art in Cincinnati and also the Kummer Museum of Art and Gardens in Jacksonville, Florida. So stay tuned. 
Alternately, why not have the exhibition come straight to you? The catalog features garments and accessories not seen in the exhibition, so get your hands on it. You will not be disappointed. Well, I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you remember that the majority of your wardrobe is considered sportswear next time you get dressed. And of course, tune in Thursday for part two of today's conversation. We do love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us, remember you can email us always at dress at iheartmedia.com or DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. This is of course where we also post images to accompany our episodes. If you have a moment to rate and review the show on your podcast platform of choice, we would be ever so grateful. A big thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible every week. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.